If you haven't yet, I'll encourage you to open your Bibles and turn to John 16. We're going to walk through this text this morning, wanting, as always, to see God's Word together and see what the Lord has for us in it. This passage kind of officially marks the end of a long section of teaching that Jesus uh, has been doing that we started studying at the end of July. And so before we get to our text, I want to just very briefly remind us of some of the things that Jesus has been teaching the disciples and teaching us. But before all of that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help. Heavenly Father, we are needy people this morning. Hearts are heavy from the stresses of the week. Minds are distracted toward upcoming responsibilities. Souls are burdened over our own sinfulness or the sinfulness of this world. We are in need of your word and your spirit this morning. May you remove these distractions and may you focus our minds that we may see and come to know the hope that Jesus offers us through the cross. Be with us now as we seek to grow through your word. Amen. So John 13 began the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse as it's called. This long section of teaching where Jesus is teaching and encouraging and warning his disciples on his way to the cross. I think we've seen and learned much through it. You may remember his teaching on servanthood where he washed the disciples' feet in chapter 13 or the new commandment that he gave to love one another in chapter 13 and 15, or the authority and the glory of Jesus that was given to him by the Father in chapter 13 and 14, or the, the unity, the oneness of the Father and the Son from chapter 14. We saw in chapter 15 just a few weeks ago that those who follow Jesus will be hated by the world. And last week we saw that Jesus promises the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to give us the need that we have in chapter 16. These are these massive theological truths that Jesus has been laying out before his disciples. And, and through all of it, this theme that is running through the center is that Jesus is about to leave. The clock is ticking. The betrayer has gone on his errand the night is falling, and Jesus spends his night preparing his disciples for his upcoming departure, that they might remain in Jesus. And so as we come to our passage this morning at the end of chapter 16, that's the last section in this large um, teaching that Jesus has been giving his disciples. He's about to uh, lift his head and pray to the Father and then head out to the garden in chapter 17. And we might ask, what would Jesus's last topic be? What would he want to communicate right at the very end? Or maybe we're saying it a little bit differently with the events of the cross right around the corner. What will the disciples need leading into these next few days? I think the answer that we find here is that Jesus gives them hope. 
hope that will bring them through the next few days. And with that hope for the rest of their days that I believe we are in need of as well. And so we'll see that Jesus gives them and us three things. One, hope that the sorrow will end. Hope in our access to the Father. And hope that even when we fail, God does not. Hope that our sorrow will end. Hope in our access to the Father. And hope that even when we fail, God does not. So let's see it and find it together. Verse 16. It says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. These words here, a little while, could really mean at least two different things. And while initially they might not sound all that important, understanding them correctly will help us understand the rest of this passage correctly. And it rests on understanding the question of when Jesus is talking about. So on the one hand, is Jesus saying, in a little while you will see me no longer, meaning in a little bit I will be crucified on the cross, I will rise again, and I will go to be with the Father, and then you will see me no longer. But one day in just a little while I will come again, and I will make all things new. And so is this when question a ascension and second coming type of timeline? Or on the other hand, is Jesus saying, I will be killed and buried and you will not see me. But don't lose heart. In just three days, I will rise again and you will see me. Making this a three day type of timeline. Just a few days and just a little while. As I already kind of alluded to, and as we walk through this passage together, we th I think the second option, the, the three-day timeline, allows us to make better sense of the message that Jesus is trying to communicate. We'll see that Jesus is not only giving his disciples a, a final thought to end his teaching, maybe a final boost of hope for just the future, but he really zooms in and he gives them a boost of hope for the next three days, days about to be filled with great sorrow. As we go, we'll see that this option best fits with the whole passage, and we'll see that there are clues in there that uh, show us that I think that is what Jesus is trying to say. We're not just pulling it out of the air. So let's continue with the text and see that the disciples, they also kind of ask a very similar question to the one that we just did. Verse 17 so, so, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. So the disciples, they kind of pop back into our story here. We haven't heard from them since chapter 14. And they're confused here about what Jesus means by this. They repeat what Jesus said from verse 16. And then they also pull what he said from verse 10. Because I am going to the Father. 
As Tommy mentioned last week, uh, the disciples are always having issues understanding what Jesus means when he says he's leaving. And usually their, their motivation for questioning Jesus usually tended towards selfish desires and not holy ones. So the disciples here are, are pulling in Jesus' ascension to the Father from verse 10 and are focusing on the, the long timeline. And so they're confused. How do these things fit together, the things that Jesus are saying? What does he mean by a little while? What does he mean that he's heading back to the Father? What's happened is they've missed this turning point in verse 16, that Jesus has begun to focus in on the next few days. They've missed that, and they've started to whisper among themselves, confused over Jesus's words. But Jesus, like he has done before, he recognizes their confusion. He knows that they're whispering, and he knows what they're whispering about. And so he responds. He responds in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. I'm going to stop there uh, for a moment because the truly, truly in verse 23, I think we'll actually begin a new thought from Jesus that will carry us through verse 28. And so Jesus responds here to the disciples' confusion with a promise an analogy, and an even greater promise, all in order to encourage the disciples to give them hope that their sorrow will end. He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He says, in a little while, in mere hours from now, when I'm beaten and whipped, and when I'm nailed to that cross, when I'm hanging before the world, and when I breathe my last breath, you, my disciples, will be filled with sorrow. Your hearts will burn with anguish. Your world will have seemed to have fallen. This great lamenting is waiting the disciples that will be worsened by the shouts of joy heard from the world. He says, the world will rejoice. They will rejoice over your sorrow. They will rejoice in their success. They will have put down their greatest opponent and you will see their joy. If such sorrow awaits the disciples these next few days. But that makes the promise here so sweet, the promise of hope. Your sorrow will turn into joy. In times of sorrow or pain, whether in our lives or in the lives of those around us, we might hear friends or coworkers or even family members say things like, it will heal with time, or it might not ever be gone, but it will get better. 
But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says your sorrow will be replaced. Not just pushed aside, not just displaced by a new emotion, not just lessened with time. No, he says the very thing that's causing your sorrow will be no more. But even more than it just being gone, what's causing your sorrow will actually bring you joy. Joy and happiness and rejoicing. And then he gives us an analogy about childbirth to highlight that exact point. What's causing your joy, or excuse me, what's causing your pain will bring you joy. And if you've been around Castleton long enough, which doesn't really have to be all that long, you'll know that these days childbirth is a welcomed and frequent thing around here. And yes, I will be taking responsibility for one of those very soon. But Jesus gives us this idea of of the joy, the joy of a newborn child. And this joy replaces the pain of the last few hours. What was causing the pain, the very thing of childbirth, has now given way to a child being born into this world. And along with it comes great joy. And so Jesus says to his disciples, what will cause your pain will also cause your joy. And this analogy here really only fits with our three-day timeline. It's one of our clues in the passage to help us understand it that way. Jesus will die and no longer be with the disciples. But in, in three days, the very death that's causing your pain will be replaced with great joy because of the resurrection of Jesus. The long timeline understanding would leave us believing that until Jesus' second coming, we would live in constant sorrow. And that's just not true. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and glory filled or filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is great joy to be had due to the salvation we have received from Jesus. Is an inexpressible, glory-filled joy. And so verse 21 there helps us understand this when question of verse 16. When will all of this take place? Very, very soon. And then verse 22 and 23 give the disciples and us the same kind of picture, kind of a recap of what Jesus has already said, but with a greater promise. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Let's start with just that last phrase there. What does it mean or what does Jesus mean when they will ask nothing of him? Or another way of saying it, that they will no longer ask Jesus anything. Why would that happen? What changes? If we use our three-day timeline again, we see the disciples are about to have an aha moment. At the beginning of verse 23, Jesus says, in that day. Okay, in what day? Well, when Jesus has been raised to life 
and appears before the disciples, what changes for the disciples? A lot of things are about to, but at the very least, their understanding of what Jesus has meant and has foretold becomes so much clearer. In that day, they will not ask Jesus any more questions about what's to come because it will have happened. They will no longer be in the dark. The Father's plan will have been accomplished. And in that day, they will no longer need to ask Jesus what he means. They will understand more fully, and we'll see, with the help of the Spirit, the bigger picture of God's plan. And in that day, Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you. There is a joy produced in their hearts that will never fade. And this joy is fueled by an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. A joy that when connected solely to Jesus' death and resurrection cannot be taken away. But it can be hard at times to believe in the truth of that promise. Just pause and think about that. A joy like First Peter described, inexpressible joy. A glory-filled joy. A rejoicing that sounds throughout the day, a song in our hearts. I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like that. I wonder at times where my joy has gone. There are seasons of doubt and questioning. There are times when we've been hurt by the failings of others. There is frustration when our prayers are not answered in the timing or the manner that we desire. There is sadness over the unbelief of a parent or a child or a grandchild. There is brokenness over the state of our city, our nation, this world. Can our joy really never be taken away? We ought to be careful, though, not to confuse the feeling of happiness with the Christ-centered joy we receive from the cross. Jesus hasn't promised us that we will always have this butterfly-happy feeling in our hearts, but he has promised us a joy that is wrapped up in our salvation. A joy that Jesus offers that will never fade. A joy that remembers the promises and the victory of Jesus. A joy that's rooted in the hope of our Savior. Like the roots of a tree planted firmly. Like the current of a river that runs strong and sure. A deep joy in our Savior. So whether we are doubting or hurting or we're frustrated, or we're sad, or we're broken. Our joy is not in the outcome of our circumstances, but our joy is rooted in the single act of Jesus on the cross. And so there's a joy and a confidence in the truth that the sorrows of this world will ultimately pass because Jesus has purchased for us and enduring hope and salvation. And then for us and for the disciples, Jesus gives us a second reason to have hope. 
Jesus is opening the doors to a new access with the Father, access through Jesus' sacrifice. He continues there in verse 23. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Another theme Jesus has been developing through this evening of teaching for his disciples is this theme of praying in Jesus' name or asking the Father in the name of Jesus. We saw that in chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, and also in chapter 15, verse 16. The focus of verse 23 and 24 here is also this idea of asking the Father in the name of of Jesus. Jesus is establishing here something that the disciples have not done yet. He says, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Why? Because Jesus' role as mediator between man and God has not been established yet, but it's about to be. And when it is, there is access to the Father in prayer like never before. Dr. Carson puts it this way. He says, ready access in Jesus' name to the Father's prayer-answering power. And so in anticipation of Jesus' work on the cross, they are encouraged to ask the Father, to ask the Father in the name of Jesus and see how he answers prayer to see that when the bride of his son calls out in his name, in the name of Jesus, in faithful, fervent, gospel-centered prayers, the Father hears. He hears our prayers. And in his marvelous timing, according to his gospel-centered plan, prayers are answered. And as the verse ends, when that happens, the bride receives joy. Joy, that faithful prayer, brings grace-filled answered answers because of the name of Jesus. But Jesus recognizes here that he might be misunderstood. Look down with me at verse 26 and 27. Jesus says this. He says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and and have believed that I came from God. So in verse 26, he says, in that day you will ask in my name. And that is very similar to what he said in verse 23, whatever you ask of the Father in my name. Very similar. But in verse 26, Jesus then makes a turn. He says, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. He's trying to clarify something here. If we logically finish out Jesus' first statement there, it might go maybe something like this. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, but you will ask the Father yourselves, for the Father himself loves you. So in verse 23 and 24, Jesus tells us we ask in the name of Jesus. And then in verse 26, 
Jesus tells us he will not ask the Father, but we will. Dr. Carson again helped me, and he kind of highlights this tension here. He says this. He says, there is a danger in stressing the use of Jesus' name in this new prayer relationship with the Father. It might lead some to think incorrectly that the Father is standoffish and essentially alien to the followers of Jesus. This potential misconception, Jesus therefore hastens to clear up. So praying only in Jesus' name might lead us to an unhealthy view of the Father. Jesus is, is near to us, but the Father is far off. And Jesus wants to protect his disciples and us from that false view. And so he clarifies and confirms our access to the Father. But how do we fit these together? How does praying in Jesus' name fit with our access to the Father that Jesus purchased? There is a separation here, a separation between our status and our access. Our status before the Father, our standing before him is solely based on the redemptive work that Jesus did on the cross. We are made right before God. We can stand in the presence of an all-holy God because Jesus satisfied the debt we owed for our sin by taking it upon himself at the cross. The just judgment of God was poured out upon Jesus, paying the price for our sin. And in that moment, when we trust in that salvation, this white robe of righteousness is wrapped around us, the righteousness of Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus becomes our righteousness before God. And so we stand before God as having been made right. And that is our status before him, being made right. Our access to the Father, on the other hand, is the fruit or the reward of that status that was purchased by Jesus. We now have direct access to the Father because of Jesus's saving work. When we pray in Jesus's name, Jesus does not then lean over to the Father and whisper your prayer to him. We enjoy being sons and daughters. We enjoy the access we have to the Father who loves us and who hears our prayers. And so we, we pray to the Father in Jesus' name, meaning because of this status that I have been given by Jesus' work on the cross, because of this white robe of righteousness that I wear, God, hear my prayers. Father, hear when your children call out to you. What an incredible gift we have received through the cross of Jesus. And may we be humbled by it this morning. But Jesus also encourages us. He says, may we also use it. May we be free to ask and take advantage of this access that we have to the Father. Ask the Father. Ask in the name of Jesus. And we see through that that we have this great hope because the Son and the Father are both near to us. And so we've seen that we have hope because our sorrow 
will not last. And hope in our communion with the Father. The next verses here, Jesus gives the disciples and us hope that even when people fail, God does not. In verse 29, we see the disciples respond to what Jesus has been saying. And yet their response shows us that they haven't really grasped the meaning of what Jesus has been trying to teach them. Imagine this scene with me just for a moment. Imagine you're in the kitchen and maybe you're cleaning up from lunch or dinner and you hear your daughter, maybe your granddaughter screaming from the next room. And so you put down your towel pretty quickly and you walk in there and you listen as your daughter tells you through her tears that her little brother hit her. Now your son, he's been kind of doing this lately, and so you're not all that surprised. And so you pull him aside and you get down on his level and you take his little hands in yours and you say to him, God made these hands for good, to help people, to be kind to one another. Jesus wants us to use our hands for good and not to hurt people. And your son, he looks down at his hands and you can see the wheels turning, right? He's thinking about it. And in that moment, you think to yourself as he's thinking about what he's done, you think, wow, I think I just nailed that. I was clear and concise. I even had a little Jesus in there. I think I'm finally getting through to him. And your son, he's looking at his hands and then he looks up and he's just got this big old smile on his face. And he says, wow, look, I have hands. And you realize he quickly, you quickly realize he entirely missed the point of what you were trying to teach him. He, he clearly did not understand. And the disciples here in verse 29 and 30, they just really miss the point of what Jesus has been trying to say. And it dawned on me that as, as we study the passage together, that we should also be careful not to miss the point. I don't think we have, but the disciples, they did. They say in verse 30, look at verse 30. They say, now we know that you, Jesus, you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. What are they talking about here? What is the, the truth that they've found that has caused them to finally believe? I think what they're referencing is verse 19, that Jesus knew what they were talking about or what they were thinking. Having this knowledge of unspoken things was among Jews a, a sign of the divine. If he knows our thoughts, he must be from God. And in the book of John, we've already seen that response at least twice. One from the woman at the well, when she calls out, you must be a prophet, after Jesus lays out her life story in chapter 4. And also in the calling of Nathaniel in chapter 1, when he cries out, you are the son of God, when Jesus tells him perceived or unspoken things. And so Jesus himself has been establishing this connection to the divine. And so when they say, now we know that you know all things, they're declaring Jesus to be God, that he knows their thoughts. And they're right. They're right in what they believe about Jesus, no matter how 
small it might be. But as you've probably noticed as we've been walking through the text this morning, that Jesus' ability to know their confusion and to answer it is not the point that Jesus is trying to make hours before he leaves them. He's not just trying to show them that he can read their thoughts. He's trying to give them hope for what's to come. But they focused on the wrong thing, and they have not grasped this central point that Jesus is trying to teach them. And so with a bit of irony, Jesus calls out, do you now believe? Verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. And if we were unsure of what Jesus' answer to that question there, do they believe, might be, Jesus reveals it to us by telling us what the disciples are about to do. They will be tested, and when they're tested, they will scatter, and Jesus will die alone. They do have belief, but it is a belief that is pre the cross, pre Jesus' resurrection, it's pre-ascension, pre the coming of the Spirit. It's before the persecution and the trial and the sorrows. They have faith, but they have so much to learn. And in the moment, they will scatter. When that time comes, they will scatter. But Jesus reminds us that the Father will never leave him. And then verse 33 Verse 33 not only finishes Jesus' current dose of hope to the disciples, but also rounds out and I think completes this whole evening of teaching, a fitting end to a grand gathering. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have said these things that you might have peace. What things? Well, I just told you, disciples, very directly that in mere hours you will fail me. And when that time comes and when you've had time to reflect on your actions, you will be tempted to mourn over your mistakes. You will be tempted to have sorrow that you abandoned me at the cross but have peace. I am warning you, I am telling you these things now so that when you're tempted to be overcome with guilt, you may remember my words. Remember what I told you. Remember that it would be so. And may you have peace that your failings were accounted for. That your shortcomings, disciples, didn't stop the grand plan of God. The Father was always with me. And in that day, have peace in your hearts. And as you see the the plan of God unfold, as you see the, the truthfulness of all that I have spoken to you, have hope. Not in yourselves, because you will fail, but have hope in God, who will never fail. And once Jesus has given his disciples these three pillars of hope. The sorrow will end. Our access to the Father 
God does not fail. He then teaches us and the disciples the way our hope in him changes how we see the world. It's a familiar line to us, this victory that he will win. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says this world is filled with tribulation and trial. It will cause you hardship and pain. But Jesus says the world does not have the final word. The victory on the cross has been accomplished. But I don't think the main point of this verse is to list the things that Jesus has had victory over. And while that would be a a fruitful endeavor and we could see the glory and the splendor of Jesus through that, here in this moment, Jesus is telling us and his disciples that his victory causes us to respond to tribulation and trial in a specific way, a command to take heart. A command to feel differently. A command to have hope in the middle of the trial because that trial is in a world that is now ruled by Jesus. And so to close this morning, I want to very briefly give five ways in which Jesus' victory on the cross shifts our understanding of the world. It shifts our view of the trials we experience in the world, and it ought to fill us with hope. Number one, we have hope in Jesus because even when the world's troubles surround us, Jesus has purchased an inexpressible and glory-filled joy that carries us through. Number two, we have hope in Jesus because the anxiety of the world, which turns people away from God and towards false hopes, that anxiety cannot shake the unfathomable peace that was purchased for us on the cross. A peace not about relaxation or comfort in this life, but a gospel peace because our debt has been paid. Number three, we have hope in Jesus because even when the world tries to plan its future or tries to wipe Christianity from that future, God was pleased to rescue us from darkness, giving us confidence that all will go according to the plan of God and not according to the plan of the world. Number four, we have hope in Jesus because even when the world does persecute us or harm us or even kill us, our salvation is sure in Jesus. And so we will be prepared to follow in his footsteps. And lastly, number five, we have hope in Jesus because while the the world pursues the fleeting pleasures that it offers, the cross of Christ has given us a purpose and a mission. And we can take heart because within the grand plan of God, our lives will not be wasted and we will glorify him. May we see 
And may we feel and may we grasp the hope we have in this world because of the victory of Jesus. Let's pray.